Well, hello, everybody. Great to see you. Actually, I can't see you. <laughs> I just see your names. Um, you know, I just so wish that we could be in the same room together doing this. Um, this is a, a really um, weird time and um, it's for conversations like this that I am most sad that we can't be together because I think it's really hard to have these kind of conversations about sensitive issues um, when we're not even able to actually be in the same room together. Um, but I want to just thank you for joining this evening. Um, and the first thing I want to do is just invite you to take a deep breath wherever you are, however you're feeling. Um, I think it's really important that we just each acknowledge our emotions right now and whatever feelings uh, you may be feeling at the moment. Um, I will just tell you honestly, personally, I'm feeling um, a lot of anxiety. I have felt like I'm gonna be sick for like the last 24 hours <laughs> just because um, I know what a, a sensitive issue this is and I wanna, and I wanna try to um, lead faithfully. Um, I know that some of you are um, very alarmed and distressed and even angry um, about what you see happening in our country, um, about what you see happening in our world. You might even be angry at me right now that we're even talking about this. I don't, I don't know. Um, I think it's just important to acknowledge that and name that. Um, and there's others of you um, who might be on this call who are just afraid. You're afraid of what this conversation um, in our church will result in. Maybe uh, you're, you're someone who is an African-American on the call and you're feeling a little unsafe about having this kind of conversation in a mostly white church. Um, so I, I guess I just want to acknowledge that there's just probably a whole lot of emotions that people are experiencing right now that are with us right now that range from anxiety to fear to um, frustration or anger um, or even just curiosity. And I just want to acknowledge that all of those different things that we're feeling right now um, and that we are together in Jesus. We are together with Christ. We are together in Christ. Jesus holds us all together in his grace right now. And something that holds us all in common right now is that we all want, we all are just seeking to love God and to love our neighbors in this troubling and really difficult time. And so I just want to begin this time just by asking God to help us, um, to help us uh, listen to help us to learn what it means to love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly with God um, and to help us do that in what is one of the most difficult times that we've ever experienced in the United States um, and to do that in this really even this this particular city that we live in Richmond Virginia that has uh, uh, su such a painful racial history so let me just um, let us all pause just for a moment and just um, receive the love of God and I'll just pray to begin our time. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love our church. Thank you that you love each of us and that you know us by name. You know our hearts, you know our worries and our fears, you know our emotions, and that you meet each of us here in this place and that you call us to love you, to love each other, to grow and to learn. I pray that you would keep us faithful to you and that Jesus, 
would be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just um, give you a little bit of a framework for how we're going to conduct this time this evening. This I'll try to keep it to an hour. Um, first, I want to communicate our own church's commitment to racial justice and especially the view of our session. Um, second, I want to clarify what a biblical pursuit of justice and reconciliation looks like and we think will look like for us at third. Um, third, just want to map out a few potential next steps. And then fourth, um, give an opportunity to ask, ask some questions. And I know that will be very limited um, in this context, but there is a question and answer box. And if you want to use that question and answer um, to ask questions at any point, I can't promise that I will get to all of them tonight, but I'll do my best to get to them um, in the days to come. Before I jump in, however, um, to our content for tonight, I just wanted to share a little bit with you about my own personal story when it comes to um, race and my faith. Um, because I just realized in preparing these remarks that um, even though I've been your pastor for, I mean, I've been a pastor in this church for 15 years and I've been your senior pastor for five, um, I've never really shared the, my full story with you. Um, so I, I'd like to, to begin there. Um, you know, growing up, I grew up in an almost entirely uh, homogenous community. Um, most of my middle school and high school years were, were in a little town outside of Chattanooga called Signal Mountain, Tennessee. And there was literally only one African-American family in the entire town of 20,000. Um, and that was my experience. Um, and the, and I, my church was deeply formative to my faith at that time. Um, it was an evangelical Presbyterian church, a wonderful church. It was where I was ordained, um, where I still see as my rooted spiritual family. Um, and I was a very, very committed Christian, even as a, as a teenager and as a high school student. And if you had asked me about racism, um, I certainly would have denied any racism within myself. Um, you know, I had no ill will towards anyone. Um, and I would have really seen it as something that was an extreme thing that, that maybe a few people in strange places struggled with, but um, no, one, no one in our own community. And yet at the same time, I knew no one who had a different experience than myself at that time. Um, I went to University of Virginia, uh, and that was my first experience through God's grace where I began to develop relationships with people who were different than I was and who were different races and cultures, um, who had different backgrounds than I growing up. And for the very first time in my life, when I was 18 years old, I began to realize that my, my experience growing up was not necessarily the normal experience that there were a lot of, of my new friends whose experiences were different. And I, and I will tell you, honestly, I remember that as my new friends told me about the inequalities and injustices that they saw and that they experienced, I was very, very uncomfortable. I was defensive. Um, I still remember just like feeling incredibly like uh, disoriented and even like personally threatened. Um, something about my own experience felt threatened. Um, and even just being with people whose culture and worship styles were different than my own was extremely difficult. Um, but I stayed put and I, and I tried to listen and learn. And that process, it opened me up to these new relationships and it helped me begin to think about my own history as a Christian in a different way. I began to think about my experience growing up in a church that was 100% white. And I began to think about like, why was that? And how did that impact my faith? And why is the church the way that it is? And why is the American church as segregated as it is? And is my faith uh, impoverished because of my lack of relationships with people 
of different races and backgrounds. Um, and so it really began to cause me to wrestle deeply with um, the issues of race and my own faith. And from that college experience, actually a group of friends, um, all of whom were at UVA, uh, you know one of them, Danny Ovalo, one of our covenant partners, uh, we actually agreed that we would commit our lives to the work of racial reconciliation. Um, and at some point we would seek to do that together. Um, after UVA, I moved to England for a few years and then I, and then I went to seminary, I went to Princeton Seminary and I was, um, you know, I was one of the few evangelical, um, theologically conservative Orthodox students at a liberal seminary. And so I was very eager to um, find safety and, and safe friends there. And so there was an evangelical student group on campus called Charles Hodge Society. And Charles Hodge, you might know, is one of the most famous Reformed and Presbyterian theologians in the 19th century. And he boldly defended the gospel against modern liberal interpreters. Um, and so I became really involved in the Charles Hodge Society. In fact, I became the president by my second year. Um, and that year, some fellow black students at Princeton came to me and they told me how harmful and hurtful it was to them that we called our organization Charles Hodge Society because for the first time I discovered and they told me that Charles Hodge was one of the preeminent defenders of slavery uh, in the 19th century. And sure enough, I went and researched it and I found out that they were right. And so for the first time, I was confronted with racism in my own theological and evangelical heritage. Um, and it was very disorienting for me. I realized that I could value some things about my heritage, even while there were other things that were problematic with my heritage. There were things that we had gotten really right, and there were things that, that we had gotten really wrong and, and malformed us. And I, then I began to understand as a Presbyterian why, um, why so much of the Presbyterian church is, is very white and why people of color have historically not wanted to be a part of the Presbyterian Church. Um, and, that, and that had a big impact on me um, throughout my seminary years. Um, after seminary in 2005, I, I moved to Richmond with my family, started working at Third, and our family moved into a predominantly African-American neighborhood uh, in North Churchill. And I'll tell you, working at Third while living in an impoverished black community was a very eye-opening experience. It, enabled me to see how race and class are huge, huge separators in our Metro Richmond region um, and how our wealth can profoundly separate us from people who are different and can actually anesthetize us from uh, the pain of others. I began learning about the history of our city and how our city just wasn't the way it was because it happened to get that way, but it was through intentional choices and decisions that were made that led to all sorts of issues of poverty and segregation in our city. Uh, we ultimately started a, a multiracial church in Churchill, um, and that was a very wonderful but incredibly difficult experience for me um, because working alongside um, Black colleagues like Don Coleman and David Bailey and others, um, I continued to realize how far I had to go and how much I had to learn, and I was over and over again confronted with um, my, my own prejudices and, and even just my sinful apathy and ignorance about the struggles of my fellow brothers and sisters. Um, and, and out of that came much uh, transformation in me personally and also deep, deep friendships um, that have formed me for life. Um, over the last eight years, I've been in a PhD program um, in Amsterdam. I'm about to finish it. Uh, should should graduate before the end of the year. Thanks be to God. Um, 
But I've been researching for the last eight years about why Presbyterian churches have been so resistant to cultural adaptation and mission among non-white people groups um, and have in the process been studying um, practices inherent to much of our reformed and Presbyterian history and theology that have been shaped by both conscious and unconscious practices of racism um, and have researched about how the Presbyterian church could actually become a more hospitable and diverse community. So the reason I tell you this is that I just need you to know I, you're, I'm, I'm with you as your pastor. Um, and I just need you to know that so much of my life in the last 20 years has been shaped by this story. And I don't share this because I'm trying to promote myself as like an expert or something. I did, in fact, I feel like I, right now I know less than I thought I knew ever before <laughs> about these struggles. Um, and I'm not here tonight to offer any answers. I promise I'm here to help lead us into conversation. Um, I just want to share this because I know our experiences shape so much of our worldview. Where we stand is shaped by where we sit. And where I have sat in the last 20 years is through a whole lot of relationships and work and study and pain and joy when it comes to race and the church. And I do believe that God has called me to be your pastor in this moment. And I just need you to know my heart. I need you to know who I am. Um, so um, let me move into um, the real meat of, of our focus this evening. Um, First of all, I just want to outline our commitment as a church. Um, you know, I, I, I responded right after the George Floyd killing, um, but some people have said, like, what's Third's position on this? And I just want to clarify, like, what is our commitment as a church? You know that as a church, we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things. We believe that the gospel changes everything. We believe that the gospel is not just good news. I hope that you have heard me say this many times and that you've and that it's in, in all of us, that the gospel is not just good news for your personal heavenly destiny, but the gospel is good news for the transformation of the world. That Jesus came uh, not just to save us from hell, but he came to inaugurate his kingdom and to restore shalom to creation. Uh, we, we just affirm this big gospel from creation, fall, cons uh, redemption, consummation here at Third. Um, and, you know, it's impossible to read the Bible carefully and not see God's vision for cultural reconciliation as a big part of his vision for the kingdom of Jesus that is coming. Um, in Genesis 1, God creates humanity to, to experience unity and their difference, and he tells them to spread the earth and to create all sorts of linguistic and cultural diversity. Um, we see them resisting that in Genesis 10 at Babel. Uh, we see in Genesis 12, um, God coming to Abraham and blessing him and saying all of the ethnos, all of the ethnicities of the earth will be blessed through you. We see in the Old Testament how God calls his people to be light to the nations. We see how he brings judgment on them when they refuse that calling, and especially when they ignore or mistreat the stranger or the oppressed in their midst. Uh, we see Jesus come up on the scene. Uh, we see him do uh, wild things, crossing cultural boundaries, uh, turning over temple, turning over tables in the temple in Mark 11 uh, because the, of the mistreatment of the Gentiles in the outer courts, saying, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. We see him praying for unity in John 17, one of his last prayers. We see the spirit falling in Acts 2 on all of the people groups from the different places of the earth gathered there and the spirit pouring out and sending the church into all the nations. We see the first multi-ethnic churches being formed in Antioch and spreading throughout the known world at the time, crossing cultural boundaries. We see Paul preaching a gospel of reconciliation that tears down barriers between divided peoples. And at the end of all things in the book of Revelation, we see people from every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, and language gathered around Jesus, gathered around the throne of God. The whole Bible is a picture of God's vision for a redeemed uh, world, for the, all of the nations, the ethnicities gathered around Jesus, called back together again 
under his reign. You like that? I just summarized the whole Bible for you. <laughs> um, and so because of that, God is on a mission uh, and we get to be a part of it. So this is an issue when it comes to issues of racial reconciliation, racial justice, and the way that people from different cultures are broken and separated. This is a deeply biblical issue. We just, we have to address this because this is a gospel and a biblical issue. Now I'm grateful. I'm so grateful to be a third and grateful that that vision um, has been a part of our church for a long time, long before I was here. So in the 80s, third members like the Metcalf started leading a multi-church ministry to Gilpin Court, um, long before that was even on the radar screen for many evangelicals in Richmond. Um, in the 90s and early 2000s, people at third developed relationships with African-American churches for a citywide prayer initiative that reached a couple hundred churches all around Richmond. In the early 2000s, third members like Percy and Angie Strickland, Danny and Mary Kay Abula, moved into the inner city of Churchill, began robust ministry there that resulted in ministries like that we're still supporting today, like Churchill Activities and Tutoring and Urban Hope to work against uh, poverty in, in the city and to raise up uh, new leaders, especially minority leaders for our city. And so all of these efforts were to practice solidarity and justice and relationships um, as it was best understood at the time. It was good work. It was also flawed work. It was incomplete work. And yet I say this, um, to help us see that this, this has been part of our DNA for a long time, that the vision of the gospel includes a vision for justice and reconciliation and renewal of our city. So that brings us up to today in this crisis that we find ourselves in. Um, our session, our, our governing elders have met a couple times uh, since um, all of the, the racial unrest began. Um, and uh, we've had some, some good conversations, we've had some honest conversations, and out of these conversations, we have affirmed as a session wholeheartedly that we will not ignore this issue of race and racial justice as a church, but that we commit to the work of learning and repentance and response for the long term. That this is not just a flash in the pan issue, but this is something we wanna to commit to for a long time. Um, I'm just gonna stick pretty closely to my notes here because I wanna make sure that I'm representing the mind of the session well, um, but first of all, we believe that God's word calls us to act justly, Isaiah 117, Micah 6, 8, uh, to be our brother's keeper, Genesis 4, 9, Matthew 25, 35, and to seek the welfare of the city, Jeremiah 29, 7. So in response to God's word, we, we speak against white violence on black lives throughout history, and even today, including but not limited to police brutality. We also speak against the ways that racism diminishes the dignity and opportunity of black and brown people and black and brown communities. We believe that we're called to speak out against racism as a biblical issue, both individual and structural, because God made all of us in his image and because God is a God of justice. And we believe that the church, our church, must strive to become a community that more faithfully embodies Jesus's vision of a grace-filled, forgiving reconciled people. So to sum up, and don't make fun of me, but I'm, a, I'm addicted to slides, and so I couldn't have slides, so I made my own slides. So to sum up, here's our, here's our commitment. With God's help, we commit to becoming a more just, reconciling community of Jesus in and for our city. With God's help, we commit to becoming a more just, reconciling uh, community of Jesus in and for our city. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me say what it doesn't mean. Um, it doesn't mean, first of all, colorblindness. Our goal is not colorblindness, right? Sometimes Christians say, you know, I don't see color, I just see people. And that, it, that sounds Christian. Um, 
but I just I, I guess I want to contend that that's actually not not a, a very biblical position. Um, the Bible is actually incredibly culturally aware and culturally attuned um, to the diversity of peoples. Um, you know, sometimes I joke that um, Luke could have saved a lot of ink, very expensive ancient ink, if he did not in in Acts chapter two feel the need to list out all of the different nations and the different culture and ethnic groups that were lit, that were gathered in Jerusalem at the time of Acts 2. But he thought that that was really important to list the distinctive cultural groups that were present there. John, same for John, Revelation 21. He could have said a bunch of people are gathered on the throne of God. Instead, he said every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, and language. So the Bible is not colorblind. The Bible goes out of its way to point out differentiations of cultures. God is not colorblind. He made the cultures. He celebrates the cultural peoples of the earth. And we're not called uh, to be colorblind. We're instead called to be uh, a, a people who are, who are culturally aware, both of our own culture and that of others. If we try to be colorblind, which means like not seeing or acknowledging cultural differences between each other, we can actually hurt people. Uh, when we don't acknowledge differences in our backgrounds or our upbringings or our experience of growing up in the United States, we can actually create an environment where people, especially people who are in a cultural minority, can feel unseen and unknown and unheard. And so our goal is never to be blind to cultural differences, but to see them as God sees them and to see each other, to see our differences, to see our different experiences, to see each other's hurt, to see each other's pain, uh, to listen to each other. Um, I love what my mentor, John Stott, uh, wrote. He said, cultural reconciliation unlike assimilation, involves cultural sharing, a genuine respect and interest in cultural differences, not submergence by the dominant party over the other. That is not the biblical vision. So that's, that's the first thing I'll say that we're not seeking to do. We're not seeking to be a colorblind church, but actually to be a more culturally aware church under, under the lordship of Jesus. Um, secondly, our goal is not just simply uh, diversity which is a very sort of pop word right now, you know, to be diverse. You know, at Easton Fellowship, uh, we quickly realized that just getting a diverse group of people in the room, getting black and white people in the room, was actually not a particularly amazing accomplishment. <laughs> um, it looked good. It felt good. You know, you're singing different kinds of worship songs and that sort of thing. Um, but it was clear during the other times of the week that there was a lot of pain, a lot of misunderstanding, and some not very strong relationships. So here's why we're saying that. We do actually want, Third Church to become a more diverse community. Um, we said that five years ago in our strategic planning report that we want a church, our church to more faithfully reflect the demographics of people that are increasingly around our church building. And we do want that. We want our church to be a more hospitable place for people of diverse cultures. And we have a long way to go in that area. But let me just say this, just like going for diversity, like so many secular organizations are doing right now, is actually not the answer for the church. Uh, we begin not with diversity, but we begin with discipleship. Uh, we begin with following Jesus, following Jesus, not following uh, the ways of the world. Um, and so what does that mean? It means that we look at ways that we've been um, malformed by the culture, um, look at the ways that our backgrounds and history um, and the way that race works in America has shaped us and gotten inside of us like water gets, gets inside a fish, um, how it has affected the way we see the world and has maybe even intentionally hurt and excluded people. Um, and then in the process, we seek to become more like Jesus, someone who 
sees people, hears people, and loves people. So our goal is to become um, more like Jesus. And in the process, we believe that that discipleship will hopefully, if we pray, lead to more diversity, that our church more faithfully reflects the kingdom of God. But diversity is not our goal per se. It is to be more like Jesus. Um, okay, so I said, first of all, what our commitment does not mean. It does not mean simply colorblindness. It does not mean simply banging the diversity drum. What does it mean? What does our commitment to become a more just, reconciling church mean? Well, since this is a webinar, I get more points than three points. So I got five points, okay? So what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, first of all, it means, a little hard, hard uh, figuring out the camera here. It means a deep commitment to the gospel, a deep commitment to the gospel. Gosh, sides are being so starkly drawn right now, are they not? I mean, it seems like every day it just gets more and more polarized. Um, and depending on whether you have a more progressive temperament and viewpoint or more conservative temperament and viewpoint, you will always sort of tend towards one interpretation of events or the other. Uh, and right now, what we're doing is we're being made to believe that the opponents, the people who are on the other side of issues, are either like liberal ideologues or like right-wing racists. Uh, and unfortunately, there seems to be very little um, room for anything in between. Um, so as followers of Jesus, we must reject this way of discourse. We must be more committed to Jesus and the Word of God more than any political ideology right now. That's gonna be very hard for us right now because the, those political voices are so strong. I want to, you to hear me, dear friends, dear family. Our enemy is not racism per se, it is not socialism. Our enemy are not Republicans, our enemy are not Democrats. Our enemy is sin, our enemy is the devil. And our salvation is not capitalism, our salvation is not social revolution, um, our salvation is not wokeness, our salvation is not traditional family values. Our salvation is Jesus, Jesus Christ, <laughs> the one who lived and died and rose for us, the Lord of the world. And so we must be very clear on this, but the Bible and the gospel should be challenging all of us because all of us have natural temperaments that side in, 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 in various ends of the spectrum. So we must remember that no political grouping, no secular social analysis of what's happening right now will ever align fully with the word of God. We are bound together by a common commitment to Jesus and his kingdom. It's also vital that we remain committed to the gospel because the gospel is ultimately about uh, sin and grace. Sin and grace, sin and forgiveness. You know, I'm just so sad and sickened by the, you know, the pointing of fingers from one side to, to the other. Uh, one side accusing the other as being, you know, destroying American values. The other side just accusing the other as destroying equality and justice. Self-righteousness is the posture du jour right now. It's like the way that you get attention is through self-righteous self rage. They are the problem. You know, I am on the side of the right. Friends, the gospel uh, changes us. The gospel humbles us. Um, it reminds us that we are all sinners, um, that we are, we are often wrong, um, that we desperately need help. We desperately need grace. The gospel drains us. It should drain us of self-righteousness uh, and position our identity deeply in the person of Jesus. Our identity is not in our opinions. Our identity is not in our ideas. Our identity is not in our political identities. Our identity is not in our racial identity even. All of those things are fine. They're important to have as secondary and tertiary identities, but they are not our central identity, which is Jesus and Jesus alone. So that grace 
that we have our identity in Christ frees us for these difficult conversations, frees us to be wrong, frees us to take risks, frees us uh, to be open to others, frees us with grace to talk about difficult issues without defensiveness or anger. If we're going to be able to talk about this in a church that is as diverse um, socially and politically as ours is, then we have to be centered on the gospel. Okay, so that's that's our first commitment. Second thing, if we're going to make this commitment together, we've got to be willing to uh, cultivate new relationships. Let's cultivate new relationships. Um, this will always just remain an issue uh, unless um, you have real relationships with people who who are different. Uh, one of the most powerful transformations that happens in the New Testament is when the gospel tears down barriers of race and class. Um, people divided ethnic groups so that people who were once enemies uh, can now be brothers and sisters in Christ. Having real relationship with someone changes your perspective because their concerns and their struggles suddenly become your own. It becomes part of your mental furniture. You know, if those of you have been married, I've been married for 20 years to an amazing, beautiful woman named Sarah. And, um, and after being married 20 years to her, I instinctively see the world, not just through my perspective, but, but also her own. That's what relationships do. And I can tell you that now my 15-year close relationship with Don Coleman has been totally transformative because throughout those years, I now almost always think about not just my perspective on something, but what his perspective as a black man might be. So for example, when Ahmaud Arbery was shot and I saw that picture of this young, um, young adult black man on the TV, uh, my first thought was, Don is going to be devastated because he just had a grandson and he's going to think of his black grandson. He's just going to see a black boy and he's going to think of his grandson. And sure enough, when I reached out to him, it's exactly what he said. I never would have thought of that were it not for my deep, close relationship with him. So we learn to feel the pain of others through the relationships. We learn to understand experiences of other people who are very, has been very different than our own. Our work cannot be just intellectual. Um, it can't, it's got to be personal because relationships foster empathy um, and, and it helps us to do what God tells us to do in Romans 15, to grieve uh, one another's grief. So developing a trusting friendship with someone of another ethnicity and race and being willing to listen and learn even when they are saying things that are very hard for you to hear that you disagree with is a very powerful act of Christian love. Um, so cultivating your relationships. Third, um, and this is very closely linked, a commitment to humbly listen. Commitment to humbly listen. You know, this is a very hard issue to talk about. Um, it's a hard issue to talk about in your family. It's a hard issue to talk about with your spouse. It's a hard issue to talk about in the church. It's very easy to get offended. It's very easy to offend. And frankly, we do not live in a society that has trained us to listen well. Uh, we live in a soundbite society. We live in a society that is full of clickbait. Uh, we inhabit echo chambers in which we seek out voices and leaders who will affirm what we already believe. Um, and we quickly caricature one another. And we do not practice nuanced thinking. That is a lost art uh, in our age. Yet, the Bible calls us to be quick to listen and slow to speak, James 1.19. The Bible calls us to put one another's interests before our own, Philippians 2.3. So especially to those of us who are white and who are in the majority culture, our great calling right now is to listen very, very well to those whose experiences um, and histories and perspectives are different than their own, to listen deeply and to hear their stories. This also will involve a commitment to 
humility. God's word calls us to fear God and to honor governing authorities, 1 Peter 2.17, to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, to love our neighbor, Mark 12.31. To those ends, we must commit to respectful words regarding our leaders, even when offering critique. We must avoid using extreme language, for instance, caricaturing all police as evil or all protesters as thugs. Um, We must not avoid binary terms like that person's a racist or an anti-racist or an American or an un-American. We must humbly accept that we don't have all the answers on this and seek to embody empathy and loving kindness uh, and sacrificial love. So the gospel enables us to have the kind of community that we can disagree with each other um, and still be bound together in love. So a commitment to humbly listen. Four, an honest wrestling with our history. Now this, this may be one that, that some of you get mad at me about, um, but I know you love me and I love you. Um, so it's, it's impossible to understand the current experience of racial hostility in our country without understanding our past. Um, slavery and segregation have long been dismantled, but the effects of those, uh, you know, 345 years of those things cannot be erased in, in just 45 years. The effects of these things and these tragedies, these deep, terrible tragedies have been baked into our society and the effects continue to last for generations. Um, we know that the, this is a biblical concept. The Bible teaches that evil is not just personal individual, but also is historical and social. Um, And this is why God judges whole nations and societies in the Bible, not just individuals. Let me quote um, uh, St. Tim Keller here. Um, Tim Keller says, systemic racism happens through institutionalizing practices that favor white people and exclude non-white people. When people institutionalize something, they create structures that keep the practice going long after the founders of the practice leave the scene. Very powerful statement there. And this is why God, like in 2 Chronicles 7.14, calls whole societies to repent. Um, this is why we see people like Daniel repenting for the sins of his ancestors, Daniel 7. This honest wrestling is vital uh, if we're going to respond well to this current moment, to, to look at the history of our country, look at the, the history of our, our, our city, um, and even our church. We know that third was birthed as a mission to the working class people in Shaco Bottom 185 years ago, we know that as an institution, we have lived through all the stages of our church's history, from slavery, through the Civil War, through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, through the Civil Rights era. And we know that God has worked mightily through our church, but we also know that those who've gone before us, like us, are sinners uh, in need of grace. So we want to seek to understand Third's role uh, in our city's story of race so that we can learn so we can learn from our brothers and sisters who went before us, both in their successes and in their failures. So we, we wrestle with our past to more faithfully uh, respond to our present. So an honest wrestling with our history. And then finally, uh, a commitment to personal growth and change. A commitment to personal growth and change. Um, our work has to be also personal. Um, that each one of us make a commitment as a disciple of Jesus to see the ways that we have been um, malformed by the world and to be reformed by Jesus and the word of God when it comes to to race and the gospel. 
Uh, we're called to learn, to examine ourselves, to commit to new ways of doing things. This involves first awareness that we would seek to learn and listen and read, um, listen to Christian voices that can guide us and help us to learn about our history and about justice and about what the Bible teaches about these things, about reconciliation. Um, this commitment also involves repentance, which literally means to change direction, um, to go a different way, to recognize ways that, gosh, I have been more shaped by this in the culture than, than by the gospel. This is what I was realizing all those years in college and seminary. Honestly, looking at ourselves, our past, our own issues, our own prejudices. Um, one of my favorite stories, I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about this before, is from Galatians 2. When Paul confronts a fellow apostle, Peter, Paul visits the church of Antioch and discovers that the apostle Peter was separating himself from the Gentile Christians at the dinner table. And, and, and you know, just to remind you, this act of separation was not only permissible, but actually expected, required for Orthodox Jews like Peter. So Peter was just doing what was expected of him. He was doing what Jews had always done. He was doing the normal status quo thing. But Paul saw this behavior and rebuked him for the sin of discrimination, saying, Galatians 2.14, your conduct is not in line with the truth of the gospel. It's not in line with the truth of the gospel. And you can imagine Peter saying, what's the problem, man? I'm just doing what I've always done. But Paul demands that the gospel require repentance, change, a new direction. That, the, that Jesus has now broken down barriers, and he must now live differently as a result. And so we've got to we've got to examine those same sorts of unconscious um, sins in our in our own life. That we may be doing things that are natural to us without realizing that we may be thinking and acting in ways that are out of line with the truth of the gospel. That we may not be consciously disobeying God but it may just be that our natural instincts and ways that we respond to things are more formed by the idolatries of culture like greed um, or power or racism than by the gospel of grace. Um, I admit with shame that even recently hearing that a black man uh, was killed, my first knee-jerk reaction was to wonder what criminal act he did, assuming that, that, that he somehow deserved it. And family, I repent. Uh, I, I repent. I know that I still um, have been more shaped by, by the, the, the idolatries of our culture and the ways of the world than by the gospel, that Jesus calls me every day to, to, to grow in awareness and practice self-examination um, and turn to a new way. And we're all called to do that, regardless of your, your background, your race. We're called to turn away and turn to Jesus. So this is a communal journey for all of us as a church, but it also must be a personal journey for each of us as we follow Jesus and seek to become more like him. So those are our commitments. We want to commit to become a more just reconciling community, and we'll do that through a commitment to the gospel, to cultivating new relationships, uh, a commitment to humbly listen, uh, to honestly wrestle with our history, um, and, and a commitment, a personal commitment to growth and change. And all of this is just bathed, it must be bathed in fervent prayer for God to work revival among us, revival in our church, revival in the Church of Richmond, revival in the city, revival in our country and our world. So let me talk about just some next steps. Um, first of all, um, tomorrow morning when I send out my um, weekly email, um, first of all, I will include a link for a new resource page that we've created on resources in race and racism. And I just would want to encourage you to maybe just follow up 
with this webinar with just one, just by looking into one of those resources, whether it's a book, um, uh, a podcast, a video, or an article, just commit to take one step to learn something new. Um, and, and we're, we're going to have some great resources for you to use there. Secondly, and I'm really excited about this, um, one of our mission partners, um, which is called Erebon, which is directed by our friend David Bailey and um, works to build reconciling communities, um, has, a, has a great resource called Race, Class, and the Kingdom of God. And it's a six-week, uh, six-video study that our staff has gone through together at Third. That we have found to be very edifying and very helpful in our conversations about race. And now we're making it available to anyone in the whole church to do this summer. It's comprised of six studies, which includes a video and questions to go with it. And what we'll do is we'll start it in mid-July and anybody can sign up and we'll meet three times between mid-July and the end of August over Zoom um, to meet and discuss um, two sessions at a time. So there will be a number of options for meeting to allow for great flexibility. We understand people are traveling and vacations and have summer schedule, but I would just encourage you tomorrow, we'll send out a link that you can sign up for that. And we hope that lots of you will sign up because it's just a great first step to learn more about what the Bible has to say about these things. Um, if you're a young adult, um, our young adult director, Drew Cleveland, wanted me to let you know that he's hosting a summer-long conversation about issues of race and the gospel on Monday, starting at 7 p.m. Um, on July 13th, July 13th at 7 p.m. They're going to look at Daniel Hill's book, White Awake, and they're going to look at Jamar Tisby's book, Color of Compromise. So all young people, <laughs> and if you're not sure if you're a young person or not, uh, you can decide that yourself. Um, you, you can self-designate yourself as a young person. All young people are welcome to join, and you can get details on the Young Adult page. And finally, um, some some of you know our covenant partners, Matt and Anna Shank, who are the directors of Four Richmond, which is a um, Christian ministry that works to unite the churches of Richmond, and they are just doing an outstanding job during this season, helping to bring unity to the Church of Richmond. And Four Richmond is sponsoring this fall a whole city book club. A whole, our, as many Christians in the city as we can, will be reading um, Latasha Morrison's book, "Be the Bridge." Be the bridge. I've not read it because I can't get it. It is, <laughs> it's, it is sold out. Um, but I have it on back order, um, and we're in. We're going to all be reading that this fall, um, and then we're working on um, getting her to come to Richmond for an opportunity to hear from her as well. So if you can get your hands on a copy of that book, it's something to look forward to in this fall. Now, those are some short-term ways we'll respond. Long-term, um, just go back to what I said in the beginning, that our session is committed to this, that we want to become a more just, reconciling community of Jesus and in For the City. And so that means that we're going to continue to seek about how we can do that. We have a cultural reconciliation working group that has been studying this and working on this for the last few months. And we'll be looking ways that we can make concrete changes um, in our discipleship and our leadership and our programming and our worship to help our church to become just what that says, a more just and more diverse and more reconciling community. We are committed to this um, for the long haul. So um, we've got about uh, uh, 15 minutes left. And what I'd love to do is just um, answer any questions that, that you might have. Um, and um, I, I don't know if I'll be able to answer all the questions because um, there might be a lot, but what I am committed to do is to answer all of your questions. So if I don't get to all of them in this session, um, I will maybe do another video recording. I'll do a podcast or something and try to answer um, as many questions as I can. And again, I want to just reiterate, I am not here primarily to answer all the questions. I'm here to help us foster a conversation 
um, about a dif difficult topic like, like this one. So um, here's one. Um, what is the difference between race, ethnicity, and culture from a biblical and Christian understanding? What is the difference between race, ethnicity, and culture from uh, a biblical and Christian understanding? That, that is a wonderful question. Um, well, let me just say this. The Bible doesn't actually say anything about race. Well, it does. It actually says, um, like in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, um, it says that all people, um, the whole human race is from one, all the peoples of the earth are from one race, one blood. Um, and so what that means is that technically speaking, according to the Bible, there's only one race, and that is the human race. But the Bible sees that there are many, many ethnos or ethnicities um, or cultures. I would say ethnicity is a part of culture. Culture includes all the ways of human practice and human beings. But the Bible has tremendous things to say about ethnicity, but not so much about race. Unfortunately, race actually was invented in the 19th century by social scientists as a way to basically just make arguments and justifications for why certain people from certain cultures and with certain skin colors were inferior to other people. Um, it was more of a sociological term that was created in the post-Enlightenment era in the West. Uh, but prior to that, um, really the, what the Bible has always taught is that God has created one human race with a multiplicity of cultures, and each of those cultures brings glory to God. And it is only through the, the fullness of those cultures coming around Jesus together that the fullness of God's glory uh, is revealed. Um, oh, here's a, here's a hard one. Uh, how do you respond to the comment, all lives matter? Oh gosh, all uh, okay. This is this is a this is a hard one. Um, show me some grace here, friends. Um, well, let's just talk. Let's talk for a moment about that about Black Lives Matter and 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 what that's all about. Um, so this has become a really controversial phrase, um, and sometimes people, when they feel upset about it, they respond by saying "All Lives Matter." And I think the reason why people do that, I think, um, is because it sounds like when people are saying Black Lives Matter that they're saying Black lives are more important or black lives are superior, um, or, or black lives are somehow of greater value um, th than other people. Um, and so it sounds like we're sort of almost doing reverse racism or we're creating like a different form of superiority uh, over others. Um, and let me just say that that's not actually what the phrase black lives matter means. Whatever you feel about that phrase and whether you find it something exciting or something repugnant, I think we're all called to really understand what it means, that when people say Black Lives Matter, they're not saying that Black lives are more important or more significant than white lives or any other people. Um, what they're saying is that, that Black lives matter, that, that black, they want Black lives to matter as much as white lives. It's really a, it's, it's speaking to historical reality that throughout the history of the United States, as good as the United States has been, and as wonderful of a country that we live in, um, it's also just a historical reality that black lives have not been valued as much. Literally speaking in the constitution, they were written in the constitution as only three fifths of a person that there was much of the history of the United States that black lives were mattered as human labor. Um, even throughout the 20th century, it was much of the 20th century, um, people who were black did not have the full rights and the full equality as, as other people. And so when people say black lives matter, they're saying in the cascade of history, 
we long for black lives to matter as much as other lives. And so when you respond back, all lives matter, it's really to misunderstand the concept. Um, now, let me just say this. Can Christians say, should Christians say black lives matter? Should Christians get behind that movement? Well, uh, I, I guess I'll say this. First of all, um, I think as Christians, we can say black lives matter if you separate out the phrase from the organization. If you phrase out, if you separate out the sentiment from the movement. Um, as Christians, we should unequivocally be able to say black lives matter uh, because because we uh, we want to say that um, all black people have the dignity of God, that we grieve the ways that black people have their dignity and their honor of the image of God has been marred, um, that we want to honor the, the image of God in, in people of color, uh, and we want to assert their dignity. I will never forget um, being in Eastern Fellowship and doing a survey with some of our youth, most of whom are black, and we asked them various questions, uh, and one of the questions we asked, what color will you be in heaven? Uh, and 75% of them said that they would be white. And it just broke my heart because I realized that even in their own self-awareness, their own understanding of their own beauty, that they didn't see themselves as having the full dignity of the glory of God. And so for that, as Christians, we must say Black Lives Matter because we want Black people to know they have the beautiful dignity and bear the witness of the glory of God as everyone else. It can also be a prayer uh, that Black lives would matter in our country as much as other lives. Now, on the other hand, um, if you actually look at Black Lives Matter as a movement, as an organization, um, we have to be more careful. Because when you look at the organization, you can go on their website and look at their platform, and they have 13 different platforms. And some of them we can affirm as Christians, like the dignity of the human person and justice. But other ones we just can't affirm at all, it, like the, the, the destruction of the Western um, nuclear family. No, no, we reject that. Um, full affirmation of LGBTQ lifestyles. Uh, I mean, these are things that as biblical Christians, we just can't, we can't stand behind. We can't get, get behind. But what we can do is say, regardless of, um, of what you feel about the movement, we can affirm this message framed in the biblical vision of the dignity of, of all people. So that was a, that was a really, really long uh, answer to your question. Uh, um, what are some ways that we can begin to seek friendship with people of other cultures without coming across as artificial? Um, especially for uh, the introverts among us. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I think, I think we, we need to be careful uh, because, um, you know, we, I think people who, especially in a church like ours that is majority white and where there's not many people of color, um, you know, we don't want the few people of color to be bombarded with uh, texts after this uh, webinar, will you be my friend? Uh, <laughs> that might be a little awkward. Um, on the other hand, I think it can be a really meaningful thing to, to reach out to someone, a friend, a colleague at work, or someone that you know, and just say, hey, I, I'm just coming to really learn new things um, in the last few weeks about how my experience might not be the only kind of experience in America. And I just want to learn. I just want to learn more about your story. I just want to listen and just and just hear about your life and hear about your story. I think when we are really seeking to treat each other as human beings, um, not as issues, um, not as problems, uh, but as a person who has a story, that when we come to a person and say, "I want to hear your story. I want to know more about you," um, people are eager to share their stories. They're eager to share their heart. 
So lead with curiosity, lead with desiring um, to hear someone's story. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so this is an interesting question about, uh, okay, so yeah. Basically, this is a question about how, how do we listen when people are destroying property, um, not acting reasonably, um, it's very difficult to listen and hear other person's perspective when they're doing things that seem so destructive and violent. Um, okay, I get that. Um, and let me just say this, as believers and as Christians, you know, we don't sanction violence. Um, we don't support the destruction of other people's property. Um, we don't support the burning of, of businesses. Um, in fact, um, and I would say this is marginal to the movement. We have to be very careful to always distinguish between people who are violently protesting and the great majority of people who are peacefully protesting for change. Um, and this has always been a tension within the civil rights movement. Back in the 1960s, uh, we know that there were um, uh, some people on the margins of the civil rights movement who were calling for violent protest. And Dr. Martin Luther King continued, even under great pressure, to insist um, that the true uh, lever for change is nonviolent, peaceful protest. Because as he often said, uh, hate cannot drive out hate. Uh, only love can do that. Um, on the other hand, Dr. King also said, riots are the language of the unheard. Um, and, and, and even though if we might disagree with um, the methods and disagree with property destruction, because God hears the pain in the world, we are called as people of God to also hear the pain in the world and to listen for what is the cry of pain and the cry of anguish that is behind uh, these actions. That's part of our responsibility um, as people of Jesus. Um, you know, I'm gonna keep saying this to you, but we have to be really, really careful um, about not letting ourselves be shaped by the political polarities of our culture right now. Um, let me just give an example when it comes to vandalizing. I've noticed when it comes to vandalizing, um, the people who are on the right pretty much just solely focus on um, individual personal responsibility and tend to ignore what could be the really terrible and unjust social problems that would drive a person to commit those acts. Um, on the other hand, people on the left almost entirely focus on the systemic and structural things and basically say that this person has no moral or no personal responsibility for their actions. And, and we would say, again, as biblical people, that we must reject both of those polarities. Um, that neither of them true. I've always really loved um, the book of Proverbs and how nuanced it is. I think it's deeply wise. Um, and so if you read the book of Proverbs, there's some parts of the book of Proverbs, like um, Proverbs 9 and 10, that affirm that, um, that talk a lot about individual responsibility. They say poverty and other things is because a person is lazy. It's because a person isn't taking responsibility for work, that sort of thing. And all the, all the conservatives are like, yeah. Uh, and then in Proverbs 13, it says, um, the unplowed field, produces food for the poor, but injustice uh, takes it away. And then the progressives are like, yeah. Um, and, and, and biblical people are like, uh, guys, it's both. Like we have individual personal responsibility, but there's also such a thing as social injustice. Um, and that even if someone works really hard, they can still have things taken from them and they can still have um, uh, unequal opportunities. And so as biblical people, we just need to continue um, to reject these polarities that our culture is wanting to force us into and seek to be faithful followers of Jesus and listen to the word of God more than we listen to the loud voices around us right now. Um, let's see. 
Let's see, I'll, I'll ask, answer this last one, just about like st structural racism. You know, that's become a, uh, uh, another um, word that is very controversial right now. Um, and, and I would say this just from a biblical lens. Um, I, I said this when I, when I gave the, the talk um, a couple of weeks ago, when I, just right after George Floyd was killed, is that, is, again, as Christians, we are highly nuanced. So we believe that there's such a thing as personal, individual sin, but the Bible also um, clearly talks about Romans 8, that the whole creation um, is broken uh, because of evil and sin, and that sin is not just part of um, individual people, it's also part of the fabric of the society and the, and the structures that we live in. Um, as Reformed Christians, as Presbyterian Christians, we have a great doctrine for this, it's called total depravity. Um, and total depravity doesn't mean that everything is depraved, it means that everything, the totality of human existence is broken by sin. And that means that no aspect of society is immune from sin, including our economic systems, our political systems, um, and our social systems. Um, time, things that have happened a long time ago, time does not just make sin go away. The only thing that makes sin go away is the blood of Jesus, right? <laughs> um, and so uh, we, we, we have to affirm that um, even things that happened years ago continue to have terrible effects. Let me just give you an example. Um, even when black Americans were given full rights in the light, late 1960s, many policies uh, and laws had already caused great harm um, to black Americans and it prevented things like homeownership um, and the generation of, uh, uh, the accumulation of generational wealth. So, so like the, in 1968, uh, the Fair Housing Act was passed, which um, did sort of modestly enforce uh, future discrimination against black homeownership. But the problem was it didn't do anything to reverse like a century um, of state sanctioned violations of the Bill of Rights, especially the 13th Amendment. Um, and so what happened, and so what that happened is that lack of opportunity because of all that terrible things that were happening all those years prevented the accumulation of generational wealth so that today the typical black American family only has one tenth of the generational uh, and net worth as white as white families. And then, and then that just makes it worse because the public education system in our country is based on local property taxes. And so poorer communities therefore have far fewer resources and, and, and lower quality schools, which then reinforces poverty in neighborhoods and leads to fewer resources. And it just sort of is this terrible accumulating effect. And going back to what Proverbs says, not all poverty is caused um, by, by social sin, um, but some of it is. And so as Christians, we just have to be tuned into that. And we have to be very aware, very tuned in, um, and seek to be people who are not just seeking to help people personally, individually, but also asking how we can be agents of healing um, in our society as well, because God wants us to do justice and to love mercy uh, and, and to walk humbly with him. Um, well, um, there's, there's a few more questions. Um, and I... And I will, I promise you, I will answer these questions um, uh, in, a, in a future. I'm going to do a podcast coming soon, and, and, but I just want to really honor the time and, and stick to an hour. Um, let me just close with this. Um, just a recent experience I had. So I mentioned my relationship with Don Coleman. Um, so right after uh, George Floyd was killed, um, a, a, a friend of me and Don's reached out to us 
the two of us in an email and said, um, hey, what do you think we should do right now as the Church of Richmond to respond to these this terrible unrest in our country, in our city? Um, and I was in a hurry and I just replied real back real quick, you know, well, you know, like when Charlottesville happened, we wrote a statement and that was that was pretty effective, but I don't know if that's the best thing right now. Let's talk about it. So um, a couple in the next day, I, I texted Don just to see how he was doing. Hey, man, how you doing? He texted back and he said, I'm OK. I just need you to know that your email was absolutely devastating to me. Um, he said the fact that you would think, you know, that as good of a friend as you are, as much as we've been through together, that you would think that just writing a statement would be an adequate response to the pain uh, and the horrible trauma and the, and the sorrow that I'm feeling right now, that my black friends are feeling right now, that my black family is feeling right now. I'm, I'm just so sad about that. And it just really hurt. And honestly, my first reaction was total defensiveness. I was like, you misunderstood me. You didn't understand what I was saying. Um, but I finally just said, can I come sit with you? And so he, I went to his front porch and we sat together for about two hours and I apologized and he forgave me and we cried and we prayed. Uh, and then we planned, we planned for the next seminar that we were going to do together about what's going on. Um, and I just think in a really small way, um, that can be exemplary of the kind of long-term work that we need to do together. Um, we have to have communities of trust. We have to be willing to talk about honest facts. Uh, we have to talk about pain, talk about hurt. Um, we need to be non-defensive, to deeply listen to one another, and to hear each other's perspectives. Uh, we need to be willing to extend grace and forgiveness when we mess up. Um, and then we need to, to work for change um, and recognize ways that there may be seeing things that we're just not seeing, um, that others can help us see. Um, all of this is made possible because of Jesus, because Jesus is our savior. He loves us. He loves you. I love you. Uh, and he will help us to stay unified as a church through this um, and to become more of the just and the more reconciling community of Jesus that, that he's calling us to be. Um, so thanks so much uh, for joining tonight. I love you all. I wish that we could be together. Um, we're together for the long haul. Um, and, uh, um, let's, let's pray together that God would help us. So, so let me, let me pray for us now. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that Jesus binds us together, um, in grace, uh, help us, oh God, um, to be the just people that you call us to be, to be the reconciling people that you call us to be, to be the humble people that you call us to be, to be the biblical people that you call us to be, to not allow ourselves to resist being shaped and malformed by the world, but to instead to be reformed uh, by the gospel and by the word of God. So have mercy on us, have mercy on our city, bring peace, um, bring justice, bring healing, and help us as a church to be part of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, friends. Love you all. See you soon.